If you would, grab your Bibles. Uh, Hopefully you have these journal Bibles. If you are newer or a guest with us and you would like one of these journal Bibles, we have plenty. And so raise your hand and Usher will drop one off for you. Don't don't be bashful. Get their attention. Um, We've been using this throughout our previous series. We're starting a new series today. We'll keep using the journal Bible all the way to Easter. For those of you who are at home, if you want one, stop by the church office during the week. There are some outside of the office doors. You can grab one. You don't have to meet with the pastor, okay? Just come and grab one. But this last week, someone asked me if I had been running during this really cold spell that we've had. And I said, yeah, I did. I did keep running outside. There were some days I took off, but I continued to run. In fact, I ran in some pretty cold temps. I grabbed a screenshot one of the days that I ran. And, and I grabbed one this day because I was out on a little short run in my neighborhood. And I approached this four-way stop. And like any good runner, I'm always aware of what cars are doing around me. And so there was a car coming towards me, stopped at the four-way stop. I'm making my way a couple of blocks towards it. And I realized the car's not moving, which immediately like triggers in me like something, something's not, there's no other traffic. The car's just sitting there in front of me. And as I get closer, I realize that the woman behind the wheel has her phone out. And so I don't know what it says that the locals think, this is crazy enough, I need to film this and share with somebody. <laughs> but but, but I, I told her that I had been running, and she said, wow, you, you are really becoming a true Minnesotan. She called me a true Minnesotan, and that really, like, that meant a lot to me. <laughs> it meant a, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because what it said to me was, I, I expect you to belong here. I expect you to be able to weather, no pun intended, to weather what it means to be a Minnesotan. What we call somebody names what we expect of them. And in Mark 8, 27, Jesus asked his disciples, what do people call me? So turn to Mark 8. We're going to start in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. So stop right there. His disciples are just saying that a lot of people thought that Jesus was sort of the the metaphorical uh, second coming of some of these famous prophets in Jewish history. But verse 29, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? So let's pause there and underline, but who do you say that I am? This is a critical question for us this morning. As a church, we've spent the last seven weeks in a series looking at the teachings and the miracles and the healings and the feedings of Jesus and seeing that he is stronger and able to overcome anything that the world might throw our way. But now that we've seen what Jesus is capable of, who do we say that he is? This week, we're going to look at a familiar word that we hear Jesus called, but maybe a word that we haven't thought too critically about Christ. 
we're going to look at the word Christ. And today we're going to see that to call Jesus the Christ is to accept his cross-shaped invitation. If we want to follow Jesus, to answer the question, who is Jesus, is to also answer the question, who am I? Because if we call somebody something and that names what we expect of them, we're also naming what we expect of ourselves if we are in a relationship with that person. So let's pick back up in our story today and see how one disciple boldly answers Jesus' question on behalf of the group. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Verse 30, and Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So pause there. The disciples have been with Jesus for three years, watching him do all of these miracles. In three years is a pretty long time, right? If you spend three years doing something or with somebody or as a part of something, you start to become attached to it. By your senior year in college, after three years, you're pretty attached to your school. After three years at a company, they tell you it takes about three years to really feel like you're settled in in a workplace. After three years of marriage, you're really starting to find your groove. After three years of having kids, well, you still have 15 years, so just settle in, right? But after three years, you start to become bought in. You start to be attached. Your identity starts to be affected by what you've experienced. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you've been watching me for three years. You've seen what I can do. Do you truly understand what it means to follow me? And so in your Bibles, out beside the word Christ, let's write the word anointed one. The phrase anointed one. Much to the surprise of some, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ, or Christos, was a title. It was a Greek version of a Hebrew word that meant anointed one. The Christ was a long-awaited figure in the Jewish national landscape. So we're going to need a quick history lesson from the Old Testament to understand where this comes from. So the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt. They were free. They were set free. They crossed the desert. They were given a land. And then they had a king. They had kings. And they had a belief that they were God's chosen people to bring God's blessings to the world. But then something happened. They were conquered. They lost their king. They lost their land. And they lost their identity. But they also had a belief that one day God would bring them another king. A new king. A Christ. An anointed one. And that king would restore them to God's purposes for their lives. So all that to say, these people had been waiting on a Christ to show up for a long, 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 long time. In fact, in the decades before Jesus arrived, several Jewish leaders popped up and said, I'm the Christ. No, I'm the Christ. And they led rebellions and revolts and they got squashed and everyone went about life as before. And so when Jesus shows up, they think, this is the moment. This is the guy. This is huge. The Christ is finally here. 
and the disciples, Peter has the answer, the right answer. And it's almost like that moment in the game show. They have the right answer. Tell them what they've won. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man... Okay, pause real quick. Son of Man is really Jesus' way of sort of subtly saying, yes, you are correct, I am the Christ, without using those words. So he calls himself Son of Man. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Not a good day for Peter, by the way. <laughs> Was a good day, now not so much. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So pause there. Jesus says, You think I'm the Christ. That's awesome. But guess what? It doesn't mean what you might think it means. Because they're thinking, we finally found him. And, and not only that, but we got in early. It's like the disciples got that insider, special early access that, that everyone wanted. They've got visions swimming in their head of power and privilege and respectability. They think Jesus is going to take nobodies like them and make them somebodies in the eyes of the world. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Let's underline what Jesus says it means for him to be the Christ. Let's underline suffer. Let's underline rejected. Let's underline killed. Let's underline rise again. And Peter doesn't like this so much, so he pulls Jesus aside. And he says, hold on, Jesus, hold on, slow down. If you keep saying weird stuff like this, everyone's going to leave us. We want people to follow us, right? You can't say things like that, Jesus. See, Peter wants a Christ that's going to make him successful and guilty. Peter wants a Christ that's going to make him powerful, guilty. Peter wants a Christ who's going to lead to a comfortable, easy life. Guilty. Because what Jesus tells Peter is that if any version of the Christ without suffering and self-denial and sacrifice is a demonic way to live, it is a way that will actually erode your soul and take you away from the life that God desires for you? Do you want the life that the Christ has to offer? If so, Jesus tells you how to get it. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To be clear, he's using a Roman tool of state-sponsored execution as a metaphor for those who follow him. Verse 35, 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Pause there. Let's underline, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Right now I have a couple of people in my life who function uh, as coaches. They, they, uh, they meet with me, I bring them stuff that I'm working on or some of the difficult decisions or hard things that I'm processing and they help me make good decisions. They, they help make me successful. They optimize my life and my work. They help me perform better. And I love them for it. They're great at it. It's great for me. But here's the thing. Here's what we see in this text. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus did not come to make the disciples more successful Jewish men. He did not come to make us more successful modern Western Americans. A life coach helps you save save yourself. Jesus helps you lose yourself. Pastor Rich Velotis says, Christianity in the Western world is often marginalized as a life accessory rather than a means of powerful life transformation. The disciples are learning the hard way that Christianity isn't about self-improvement. Jesus isn't an accessory to the life I've always wanted. He's not inviting you to a cross-accessorized life. He's inviting inviting you to a cross-shaped life. Because to call Jesus the Christ is to accept his cross-shaped invitation. And in this story, we learn the cross is both a way to life and a way to live. It's a way to life and it's a way to live. Let's write this in our Bibles The kingdom begins with atonement for sins. By atonement, I mean forgiveness. The kingdom begins with forgiveness of sins. That you and I, we were made for a relationship with God, to live in his kingdom with Christ as our king, but we find that we are not worthy of this king. In fact, we spend most of our lives demonstrating just how unworthy we are. And what we find is that no amount of good behavior or earning or achieving or accomplishing will ever make us worthy. Because in some ways we're just like Peter in our story. We're looking right at Jesus, but we can't see past our own selfish agendas. So the cross is an invitation to let the death and resurrection of Jesus move us beyond the barriers to a life with God, to forgive our sin so that we don't have to be worthy because he is worthy in his death and resurrection and we can have a life with Jesus in the kingdom. The cross of Christ is a solution to the problem of sin. It's a way to life. But it's also a way to live on the other side 
of the forgiveness of sins. If we claim to follow the one who came to suffer and sacrifice his life, then we are accepting the call to commit ourselves to the cross. Pastor Douglas Jones said the way of the cross is not just the way of weakness. It also finds great strength in a determined and conscious renunciation of the way of prestige, power, and possessions. He's saying that when we give up the ways of the world, the ways that Peter was tempted by, the ways that we are tempted by, ways of prestige, power, and possessions, we discover the strength of the cross. And when the ways of the world lose their power over us, we discover that we gain more than they could ever offer. Because if we call Jesus the Christ, it means we expect the cross to be a way of life for us. We cannot have the Christ without the cross. In the fourth century, just a few hundred years after Christ rose from the dead and the church began to spread across the world, Christianity was a persecuted minority in the Roman Empire. And then something unimaginable happened. On the night of a great battle, Constantine, who was leading the Roman army and who would go on to become emperor, had a vision. And in that vision, he decided to paint the Greek Cairo on the shields of his army. It's the superimposition of the Kai and the Rho. It's supposed to symbolize Christ. So the Roman army put the symbol for Christ on their shields and they were victorious in battle. And after that, he decides to make Christianity the official religion of the empire. So pretty much overnight, Christianity went from being persecuted to being favored, to where it was a sacrifice to follow Jesus, to then where everyone is doing it, and it was relatively easy. Now, I don't say these things lightly, because if I had been tortured for my faith, I would be grateful for a reprieve from that. But to ask the question is important. What do you lose when Christianity goes from being a way of sacrifice to being a way that anyone, anywhere, could easily do? Historian Justo Gonzalez says that the narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide the countless multitudes were hurrying through it. Many, this is important, many seeming to do so only in pursuit of privilege and position without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. And I say that not to judge anybody's Christianity. I say that to say that a Christianity without a cross is Christ-less. And that we cannot follow Jesus if we do not take the cross seriously. The way of sacrifice and suffering and self-denial. But the beautiful thing is, when we let the cross lead the way, 
when we follow the crucified one, we find that the cross is more than enough to sustain our lives. We find that sacrifice leads to joy. We find that self-denial leads to abundance. We find that the way of the cross is the only way of life we will ever need. Because in it, we find the life that is truly life, the life of grace, the life of forgiveness, the life of, life of hope, and the life of joy in the kingdom with Jesus, the anointed one, the crucified king. Let's pray. Holy and loving God, we are so grateful for who you are. We are grateful that you sent your son to earth to be the Christ to suffer and die in our place, that we might have life and have it to the full. And I pray that today we would be reminded of the challenge before us to let the cross be a way to life and a way of life. Let it sustain us. Let it encourage us. That because Christ has gone before us, we can go anywhere that God calls us to. So we love you and we praise you. We lay our lives before the cross and ask it to shape us and guide us, to teach us and lead us. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. Amen.